0: Welcome to the Polemical History Podcast, where we discuss history that borders on taboo. This is Tim Rudy. And this is Anthony Blackwell. And today, in the first of another short
1: series, we're talking about the events that led to the creation of the State of Israel and the dynamics of the origins of the Israel-Palestine conflict. Piece of cake, Tim. Yeah, this should be
0: like our easiest podcast ever, don't you think?
1: Yeah, our most polemical one, for sure.
0: (laughs) Right, well, at the beginning of the month, Protests over the expulsion of Palestinian families in the East Jerusalem neighborhood of Sheikh Jarrah and Israeli raids on Al-Aqsa Mosque compound preceded Hamas's rocket attacks and Israel's bombardment of Gaza. Jewish families claim they
1: lost land in Sheikh Jarrah during a war that accompanied Israel's creation in 1948, a conflict in which hundreds of thousands of Palestinians were also displaced. Under Israeli law, Jews who can prove pre-1948 title can claim back their Jerusalem properties,
0: No similar law, however, exists for Palestinians who lost homes in West Jerusalem. Today, we'll be discussing how it all began, uh, from the Roman Empire through to the Ottoman Empire, the British Empire, and finally, uh, modern-day Israel and Palestine. Um, That includes, of course, the Balfour Declaration, uh, the mandatory Palestine, including the Arab Revolt, uh, the Jewish Insurgency, and the First Arab-Israeli War. Uh, considered by Israelis as a war of independence. But for the Palestinians, um, that's the moment when they lost it all. So get comfortable, folks, because (laughs) you're in for a five-hour episode.
1: No, I'm kidding. (laughs) (laughs) Palestine was among the former Ottoman territories placed under British administration by the League of Nations in 1922. All of these territories eventually became fully independent states except Palestine, where the British mandate incorporated the Balfour Declaration of 1917, expressing support for the establishment in Palestine of a national home for the Jewish
0: people. During the mandate from 1922 to 1947, large-scale Jewish immigration, mainly from Eastern Europe, took place. The numbers swelling in the 1930s due to uh, the the genocide of the Jewish people under the Nazi regime. Arab demands for independence and resistance to immigration led to a rebellion in 1937, followed by continuing terrorism and violence from both sides. In 1947, Britain turned its mandate over to the United Nations. The UN proposed terminating the mandate and partitioning Palestine
1: into two independent states, one Palestinian Arab and the other Jewish, with Jerusalem internationalized. One of the two envisaged states proclaimed its independence as Israel, and in the 1948 war involving neighboring Arab states expanded to 77% of the territory of Mandate Palestine, including the larger part of Jerusalem. Over half of the Palestinian Arab population fled or were expelled and Jordan and Egypt controlled the rest of the territory assigned by the UN
0: to the Arab state. So, Anthony, uh, any discussion about the history of Israel-Palestine is likely to be contentious, to say the least. Uh, most people having very strong convictions one way or the other, um, none more so than the Israelis and the Palestinians themselves. Huh? Um, so, to any Palestinian or Israeli listener out there, whose destinies and those of their families and societies have been shaped by these events, know that, as with everything we discuss, though we may sound like a pair of know-it-alls, we're merely two friendly history buffs trying to, the best of our ability, make sense of this stuff, right? That's right, Tim. Yeah, I think it's, uh, I mean, it's got to be one of the most, if, even if you ask like a kid in middle school in America, um, you know, around the age of 12, what is the most uh well, you probably wouldn't know what the word polemical meant, but what is the most polemical thing you can think of, the most uh, controversial s- international situation you can think of? I think Israel-Palestine would come to mind, even for a 12-year-old, wouldn't you think? Yeah, sure. And I
1: think one of the things that make it more comfortable discussing the other topics that we've so far covered in our previous six episodes have been the fact that they're either consigned to the past um, or they're just of sort of general curious interest to a, a, a general listener. This, however, um, obviously has a continuing impact um, on the outcome
0: of of the current conflict. I mean, yeah, yeah. And you you have uh, some personal experience on the issue. I guess you used to live over there, is that right?
1: Um, I worked over there for 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 a number of months. So. Shortly after graduating uh, with a master's in international peace studies, I started working for a development education NGO where for part of the year I'd teach Irish and Northern Irish school children in both nationalist and unionist communities about the Israel-Palestine conflict as well as our own Northern Irish uh, conflict and peace process. Then for the remainder of the year I'd be based in Israel and the occupied Palestinian territories where I teach at Israeli schools in West Jerusalem and at Palestinian schools in Hebron and the West Bank. Um, you in were the, teaching what exactly? I was teaching, um, well, there were two kind of parallel programs um, in Northern Ireland and in the Republic of Ireland. I was teaching Irish secondary school students about the history of the Israel-Palestine conflict, sort of what we're discussing today, but I wasn't having these yeah. sort of candid conversations with the students. So, um, And then also, Um, sort of encouraging them to think about their own experience of conflict and the the peace process. Oh, okay. And then in Israel and Palestine, um, I was doing the inverse, and we were speaking about the history of the Northern Irish conflict, the peace process, and then having them kind of reflect on their own experience of the realities of conflict.
0: Oh, okay. I I thought you were just like teaching English to Israeli and Palestinian kids. No, no, no. And we were trying to organize... um,
1: like exchange trips also we brought israelis and palestinians over to ireland we brought um later i wasn't working for the ngo at this time but we brought irish school children over to israel and palestine oh cool and the the israeli and palestinian kids uh, worked together on on a number of projects okay um in again this time too i met many impressive educators um from both sides for whom i have an enduring respect um it was a challenging time some of our Israeli-Palestinian and Palestinian partners, not to mention the Unionists in Northern Ireland, uh, were naturally suspicious, as they couldn't be sure what I was saying to the opposite side. And on the Palestinian side, there was probably some resentment at my ability to move throughout their own land and between the West Bank and Jerusalem freely, um, a freedom which they're denied.
0: Yeah, when you were moving between there, um, was there checkpoints or something like that? Yeah, yeah, there were uh, many checkpoints. Um,
1: I got special treatment because I had a European passport um, and Traveling with Palestinians in the West Bank too, um, I was more subject to to the um, to the treatment that they received in the sense that if I were traveling in a vehicle with them, we were stopped frequently, um, the vehicles were searched, dogs were, were brought out to, to smell our persons and, and the vehicles. Um, yeah, I mean, I've I've yeah, lots of lots of stories from from that period. This was in two thousand and eight. Around the time Israel launched Operation Cast Lead against Gaza, and the current crisis is or was, I mean, it remains to be seen whether the ceasefire will hold. The third such operation since that time, um, on one occasion I was caught up in a bomb scare in Jerusalem. Uh, On another occasion, in a momentary case of mistaken identity, I had a gun pointed at me by an Israeli soldier in Hebron. Whilst traveling with Palestinians, like I said, in the West Bank, I witnessed um, at first hand their indignity, frankly, at checkpoints. Um, An experience I'd like to the treatment of African-Americans at the time of the civil rights movement um, or even in South Africa. But maybe we'll hold off on the apartheid uh, question until the next episode. Mm -hmm. Uh, We have enough to get through right now. Who who did the Israeli soldier think you were? I don't know. I was approaching the um, Ibrahimi Mosque um, in Hebron, which is a religious site, um, because it's the supposed burial place of many of the biblical patriarchs, Abraham, for example, so Ibrahim. Um, and it's, it's very important to Christians, to Muslims, and to Jews. And it's in Muslim territory. So because it's so significant, it attracted um, Israeli settlers who flocked to it. Um, and then because you have Israeli settlers in this particular area, kind of encircled by, by, by the local Palestinians, uh, I guess the Israeli state feel required to or obliged to protect them from any potential threat. So the army peers and they cordon them off and so you've got this kind of horrible situation where you've got this period this 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 part of the old city um kind of expropriated um and you've encircled by the army um so you have a, a settlement mm-hmm. and then you you have that settlement of several thousand israeli settlers surrounded by about two hundred thousand palestinians but the, the mosque is at the at the center of this so i was approaching the mosque It's ostensibly a shared place, but it's it's you know controlled by the by the military, the the Israeli military. And I was approaching it, and a a squad—I don't know what they're called—a squad, a platoon of soldiers ran out of the mosque um, in in some sort of military file with their with their machine guns raised. And one guy ran up to me with his machine gun raised, his M sixteen raised, pointing at me, shouting at me in Hebrew radio crackled and, you know, he said something and off they turned and ran down an alleyway. So I, I, I don't know. Maybe there was somebody suspicious they were looking for
0: and I guess I got suspicious. Oh, okay. Um... So, it could have been just like a, maybe a moment of panic for the soldier, like uh, just putting his gun at everyone around? Or? Yeah, you know, but obviously, when you're not used to that, it's quite a. You know, I
1: still, re- I still remember today. Um,
0: yeah, that's crazy.
1: I also witnessed uh, at this time a Hamas demonstration in the streets of Hebron protesting the latest bombing of Gaza, as well as the eviction of Palestinian families and the demolition of their homes because they overlooked those of the Israeli settlers in Hebron um, who were there illegally and deemed a security risk. So, if you're a Palestinian, ho- Palestinian living in an apartment or a home, over looking where the settlers have arrived, you're removed because potentially you could be a threat. So you get kicked out of your house you've been living in for for a long time. Um, on the other on the other side, through my conversations with Israelis, I was convinced that their trauma, the legacy of their historical persecution in Europe, and their perception of continued persecution was real to them. Um, I had many. Frank conversations from my Israeli students. Uh, students cry telling me stories. Many of their families have been um, affected also by the conflict. They've all served in the IDF, um, some in, in combat situations. The, the, the Israeli Defense Force? Yeah. yeah. Um, on one occasion in a bar in West Jerusalem, an Israeli man became belligerent when he discovered I was Irish. Um, as many Irish people are sympathetic to and express solidarity with the Palestinian struggle. For example, in Belfast, you'll find a reference to Palestine and Israel in the respective political murals of nationalists and unionists. Um, after the barwoman helped me de-escalate the situation, she said she had something to show me, and after disappearing into an office, reappeared with a copy of the Irish Proclamation of Independence. Your people and my people are the same, she said and I was temporarily at a loss for words. I understood why Palestinians felt an affinity with the Irish people, but I struggled to see how the Israelis could. And then it hit me. I had to kind of reorient my attitude toward both our histories. Um, The Palestinians identify with us in a way that's easily imagined. So as the indigenous population, they were encroached upon by colonial settlers, much like the indigenous Irish in the plantations of the 16th century and are the victims of a legacy of partition. The Israelis, on the other hand, regard Israel as their ancient and ancestral homeland in the way we Irish regard the island of Ireland as our homeland. According to this logic, the Palestinian um, is not indigenous at all, but himself a settler in the Jewish homeland, not to mention the fact that the aspirant Israelis, like the Irish, fought against the British during the Jewish insurgency that preceded the
0: 1948 Arab-Israeli War. Yeah. And I think that what you're describing there is what makes this, uh, situation so unique. I think this conflict is like just unique among all the others because it's, um, yeah, two people claiming the same land and, and both of them have like such a good point and such a, a, an amazing story. And you just, you feel for both sides so deeply, you know? Well, my, my role
1: when I was over there, you asked me earlier kind of what I was teaching. Um, The the specific mission was to take a a bilateral approach and try to inspire mutual understanding and promote a narrative that supported peaceful coexistence. That was its ideal. Sounds like a great goal. (laughs) Um, And in this way, teaching history became ideally a tool for understanding and peaceful future relations. So when faced with contradictory explanations for the same historical event, you know, we tend to polarize them rather than being able to accept them as being equally valid. However, multiple narratives addressing the same historical event may be equally legitimate and logical. People tend to internalize, identify with, and adopt the stance of believing in a moral superiority of their own account of history while disregarding um, or morally excluding that of the other side. And this has also been true of people's experience of history and conflict on the island of Ireland. Um, And what I think is interesting about the potential for this episode um, is this sort of discussion about... um, the purpose of history and historiography, etc. In recent decades, the writing and teaching of history has been woven together with peace-building, nation-building, and reconciliation efforts, and school history textbooks have a wide and authoritative reach and are instruments of collective identity-building. History textbooks define events of national pride, collective victimhood, and historical relations of rivalry and hostility. And when these textbooks are sanctioned in national school systems their particular selections omissions arrangements interpretations and simplifications they become authoritative minority or oppressed groups within the state or other states may see these accounts as biased and manipulative and for these reasons history textbooks have been at the center of controversies and educators historians and politicians alike recognize their potential to promote peace as well as perpetuate or even provoke conflict. And other notable examples of this include the end of apartheid in South Africa and the work of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, the respective breaks, uh, breakups of Yugoslavia and the Soviet Union and similar projects between France and Germany and within Germany during the era of denazification, which we discussed in an earlier episode. So given this personal experience, you can see how I might be invested today, at least at the beginning. In uh, moving beyond a a simple one-dimensional identification with a single narrative, which describes, frankly, most conversations about this topic, Um, and here I'm referring especially to the history as opposed to the current events, and instead discuss the separate historical narratives of these two peoples as they see it, with the objective being to give space to conflicting views and try to appreciate each side's uh, quote-unquote logic, um, for I doubt that any single compromise narrative that people of both societies can identify with will ever be possible. And by the way, for the benefit of our listeners, by affirming that two sides can have separate, legitimate and valid interpretations of shared historical experiences, I do not mean to imply equivalency, moral or otherwise. The multiple perspectives approach is inevitably complicated by issues of power and ideology. Each side's narrative may be symmetrical, but there is a continuous asymmetry of power between Israel and Palestine, that is, Israel's dominance and occupation of the Palestinians in the occupied territories and domination of the Palestinian minority by the Jewish majority within the state of Israel. And for their part, most Israeli Jews tend to perceive themselves as a minority in a hostile Muslim Middle East. And it's this tension between the asymmetry of power and the symmetry of each side's narrative, between the need for the two narratives to be regarded equally, that makes conversations, such as one we're having, Tim, and the ones I occasionally have in the classroom,
0: so fraught. What about you, Tim? Why, how
1: did you first come to come to this topic?
0: Yeah, yeah. I was just gonna say uh, one of the reasons I came to this topic is uh, through YouTube. Uh, there's a channel called the Ask Project, um, which I recommend to to anyone, even if you're uh, a Palestinian or an Israeli uh, living in the region, or um, you know maybe you have no idea what's going on there. I find that kind of hard to believe at this point. I think everyone has an inkling, um, but no matter where you're from, just look up the Ask Project on YouTube. Uh, it's a Canadian Jew and a Palestinian woman uh, go around Israel and Palestine um, and they just ask people questions. So they they take questions from uh, their their contributors who are maybe it's from YouTube or Twitter, I don't know, from online. And uh, a lot of times the questions come from locals. You know, it's just like Palestinian people want to ask uh, a large number of Jews maybe a certain question or uh, a Jew wants to ask Palestinians, why do you do this? What, what's your p- opinion on that? And the Ask Project just, um, they go around and they, first they ask people on the street, are you willing to be filmed? Some people say yes. Some people say no. Um, are you, are you, you know, if they say no, are you at least willing for us to record your voice? You know, we'll point the camera at the ground and we'll just record your voice. Uh, you know, your auditory uh, reaction on this question. And some people say yes to that. Um, and anyway, so they, they, they ask them questions and you get, you get really honest answers from local people. And, uh, That was one of the reasons why I got fascinated with this particular issue is I was kind of addicted to this YouTube channel. And it was so, um, uh, what's the word, like uh, it was so satisfying. Oh, compulsive. Yeah, it was compulsive. And it was it was just enriching. It was really enriching my um, my knowledge and and my my feelings for the locals. And is that exclusively on the subject of Israel-Palestine or do they explore other parts of the world, too? You can ask. I mean, the, the questions are always either about Jews, Israel, Palestinians or Islam or the Muslim world, uh, like maybe um, pan-Arabism or something. You know, it, it always has something to do with Arabs, Islam, Jews, and Judaism. Okay. You know, something like that. Okay. Um, in Israel, yeah. When? When was that? How recent is this? Uh, he, he's been doing it for the last um, six, seven years. Okay. Yeah, okay. So uh, he, I assume, I don't really know his official background, but judging by um, the host, it, it appears he's a, a Canadian Jew who um, moved, like, immigrated to Israel. Okay. Yeah. All right, well, maybe let's begin by
1: broadly outlining the different version of events as told um, within um, Israeli and Palestinian historiography. How do they see the history of this period um, themselves? So in intractable conflicts such as this one, and, as I suggested, the Anglo-Irish and Northern Irish conflict, um, each side tends to create a monolithic identity by constructing it in opposition to the other, in which historical facts are recruited to support those narratives. This is clearly reflected in both Israeli and Palestinian historiographies. So, in Israel, there's a traditionalist school consisting of participants and propagandists, as well as historians close to the political establishment who lay the entire blame at the door of the Arabs, and a revisionist school, that takes a much more critical view of Israel's conduct and place on her a larger share of the blame for the creation of the Palestinian refugee problem and for the continuing political impasse in the Middle East. And this debate between the old and the new historians or historiography, as these two schools of thought have come to be known, isn't of merely historical interest because it cuts to the very core of Israel's image of itself. In part it's a debate about the relationship between history and propaganda and it's conducted in a highly charged political atmosphere. And for this reason, it excites intense popular interest and stirs strong political passions. According to the Israeli historian Avi Shlaim, Emeritus Professor of International Relations at the University of Oxford, the conventional Zionist account goes roughly as follows. Quote, The conflict between the Jews and the Arabs in Palestine came to a head following the passage um, on 29th of November 1947 of the United Nations Partition Resolution, the call for the establishment of two states, one Jewish and one Arab. The Jews accepted the UN plan, despite the painful sacrifices it entailed, but the Palestinians, the neighboring Arab states, and the Arab League rejected it. Great Britain did everything in its power toward the end of the Palestine mandate to frustrate the establishment of the Jewish state envisaged in the UN plan. With the expiry of the mandate and the proclamation of the State of Israel, seven Arab states sent their armies into Palestine with the firm intention of strangling the Jewish state at birth. The subsequent struggle was an unequal one between a Jewish David and an Arab Goliath. The infant Jewish state fought a desperate, heroic, and ultimately successful battle for survival against overwhelming odds. During the war, hundreds of thousands of Palestinians fled to the neighboring Arab states, mainly in response to orders from their leaders, and despite Jewish pleas to stay and demonstrate that peaceful coexistence was possible. After the war, the story continues, Israeli leaders sought peace with all their heart and all their might, but there was no one to talk to on either side. End quote. This is the heroic moralistic version of the creation of the state of Israel and it's an axiom of this narrative that Israel is the innocent victim. This popular version is the one that has traditionally been taught in Israeli schools and is used extensively in the quest for legitimacy abroad. Western attitudes toward Israel are influenced by perceptions of how Israel came into the world and according to the old Zionist narrative it was an immaculate conception. It's a prime example of the use of nationalist version of history in the process of nation building and serves as the basis of Israeli policy and propaganda. According to another Israeli historian, Sima Flapan, the myths that Israel forged during the formation of the state have hardened into an impenetrable and dangerous ideological shield, and it's important to debunk these myths as a contribution to a better understanding of the Palestinian problem and to a more constructive approach to its solution. That being said, Flapan writes that his belief in the moral justification and the historical necessity of Zionism remains unaffected despite his critical reappraisal. Quote, The history of Zionism demonstrates the extent to which the urge to create a new society embodying the universal values of democracy and social justice was inherent in the Zionist movement and responsible for its progress in adverse conditions. However, writing precinctly in 1979, he continues, Israel's problem today lies in the disintegration of these values, due largely to the intoxication with military success and the belief that military superiority is a substitute for peace. And that unless the liberal and progressive values of Zionism are restored, and that Palestinian rights to self determination within a framework of peaceful coexistence are recognized, Israel's search for peace is doomed to failure. I firmly believe, he concluded, that these trends will ultimately become the deciding force in Israel. End quote. And then, of course, there's the realpolitik or realist point of view, subscribers of which are generally less self righteous and more receptive to new evidence and new analyses. They eschew the moralistic tone and instead interpret events in terms of self-interest. Now, the Palestinian version of events. The Palestinians, for their part, regard Israelis as the conquerors and themselves as the true victims of the first Arab-Israeli war, which they call al-Nakba, or the catastrophe. Most Israelis would be outraged by the suggestion that they are conquerors, but this is how they are perceived by Palestinians. Theirs is a colonial narrative, that presents israelis as colonizers rather than as enemies of imperialism as some israelis such as the west jerusalem barwoman i mentioned earlier see themselves that portrays israel as a colonial settler state part of the european american movement of expansion in the 19th and 20th centuries whose aim was to settle new inhabitants among other peoples or to dominate them economically and politically sadly for israeli critics of this narrative I suppose the expansion of illegal Jewish settlements and the de facto annexation of Palestinian lands supports this narrative, but that's a topic for another show, the next show perhaps. Um, some of the new Israeli historians, for example Tom Segev, support this line of reasoning, arguing that Zionism under the British mandate was exactly a colonial enterprise, part of the saga of white settlement as in North America and Rhodesia, and that the settlers declared independence only when they no longer required the mother country's soldiers to subdue the natives. In 1961, the writer Martha Gellhorn, who was unequivocally pro-Israel, described in an essay entitled The Arabs of Palestine, The Arab Narrative, as she saw it at that time. Quote, in 1948, war took place between five Arab nations of the Middle East and the Jews in Palestine. This war was caused by the United Nations, whose General Assembly resolved to partition Palestine into two states, one for the Palestinian Arabs, the other for the Jews. The Arab nations and the Palestinian Arabs would not accept this monstrous decision. They were obliged to protect themselves against it with force. The United Nations operated as a tool of the Western imperialists, notably Great Britain and the United States. The United Nations wanted the Jews to proclaim the upstart state of Israel. Because of the Western imperialists who favored Israel, the Arabs lost the war by massacre threatening broadcasts pointed bayonets and a murderous siege of cities the jews drove hundreds of thousands of arabs out of their homeland for 13 years these arab refugees have languished in misery around the borders of israel the united nations bears the blame for these events and must repair the damage the condition of the refugees is a sore on the conscience of honorable men the israeli government refuses to welcome back to their homeland the refugees now swollen to more than a million in number This refusal demonstrates the brutality and dishonesty of Israel, an abnormal nation of aliens who not only forced innocent people into exile, but also stole their property. There is no solution to this injustice, the greatest the world has ever seen, except to repatriate all Palestinian refugees in Palestine. Palestine is an Arab country, now infamously called Israel. Israel has no right to exist, and the Arab nations will not sign peace treaties with it, but will, by every means possible, maintain the state of war. End quote. So, when you're reading the history of Israel-Palestine and you're reading the various historians and the various books, you come across these various competing nationalistic narratives. And it sort of reminds me of that Indian parable of the blind man and the elephant. Do you know that one? None. Um, it's, uh, so, you have several blind men and they're each touching a part of an elephant and they're asked to describe what it is they're touching. But none of them can agree on what it is because they each approach it from a completely different kind of perspective. One's touching the trunk, one's touching the leg, the tail, etc. And and the moral of which is that people have a tendency to claim absolute truth based on their limited subjective experience as they ignore other people's limited subjective experiences, which may be equally true. So that's the kind of minefield in which we're, we're working in when reading or researching or studying Um, the history of israel and palestine
0: yeah that analogy kind of reminds me of what goes on in science too i think when you have uh maybe you have two astrophysicists like debating the nature of the universe they're both like going off of you know uh, it appears that our understanding of the universe is extremely limited it is limited from the human perspective and also what we know uh, in terms of physics and science and quantum physics etc so i've heard something similar described uh, not that exact analogy but it um i've heard you know two scientists or two physicists like debating and it and it sounds something like that you know they're both trying to extrapolate massively based on a kind of limited uh, a limited subjective perspective you know? so, yeah. well we're all sort of like that in every aspect of our lives yeah 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 um yeah, so it's as you say they have, you have these two these two um competing narratives, and both i mean my gut feeling is always like they both come from really reasonable um sentimental um and and just really concrete origins and and you, i just find myself kind of agreeing with both sides a lot um but you know for someone for an israeli or palestinian who's really vested in this stuff they would find it outrageous that you know how can you agree with both sides like how do you not only agree with mine maybe i don't know maybe i'm uh, over um, generalizing but that's the feeling i get um when i've like i said through this youtube channel and through um I've also spoken directly uh, in person to an Israeli soldier, ex-Israeli soldier, um, a Palestinian... I, I can't say I've ever spoken to a Palestinian face-to-face, now that I think about it. Um, but definitely lots of Arabs, definitely a lot, and, and the Arabs, M- Middle Easterners tend to be, um, if they come from an Arab Muslim background, they tend to be obviously more sympathetic with the Palestinians. <laughs>
1: Okay, so we've kind of established the lay of the land in terms of the history of the of the region, of the conflict, of the the events of the nineteenth, twentieth century. But let's walk it back a bit. I believe you want to talk to me um, a little bit about the events that preceded those
0: um, that I spoke about just now. Yeah, going way far back. Yeah. Um, Go for it. Yeah, I'm, I'm a I'm a fan of ancient history. Um, I've always been a fan of. Middle Eastern history. I don't know if that's true for you. Have you been specifically drawn to Middle Eastern history or not so much?
1: Uh,
0: I think probably my earliest interest probably
1: started with uh, Lawrence of Arabia and T.E. Lawrence and seven reading seven pillars of wisdom and watching the movie with Peter O'Toole. Um, yeah, so this time actually exactly this time during World War One and uh, and uh, the British trying to rally the Arabs to fight the Ottomans um, which we'll talk about incidentally in, in in a few minutes, and then after that, of course, uh, when when studying international peace studies, the subject of Israel Palestine and just broader uh, Middle Eastern issues um, were talked about a lot, so, and and then obviously with with my work in the NGO on on the Israel Palestine um, issue, I became yeah quite you know versed in it. I mean, I, I basically lived it for two years, I would say, pretty intensely and. Then took a, a little bit of a step back afterward because it was a
0: little a little too much. Yeah. Okay. Well, you're ready to step back in today. Stepping back in today. <laughs> um, I was fascinated. Maybe I'm over romanticizing it a little bit, but I thought the Golden Age of Islam was just too cool. Like, I remember uh, reading about that, uh, watching videos on it, documentaries, and I couldn't believe um, how during the Golden Age of Islam the Arabs translated ancient Greek texts uh, and and conserved mm-hmm. a lot of the science and philosophy that the Greeks. Had made that would have I guess I understand they would have been lost to history if the Arabs had not translated it to Arabic, yeah. um, and then the Europeans later tra- during the Renaissance they translated I believe from Arabic into the various European languages. Yeah, that yeah actually that's a that's a very
1: interesting period of history. I think in in university we we read and studied the the Mukaddima, which is an amazing um, kind of work of statecraft that described how empires fell. You know, it is an amazing piece of political history um, written by an Arab I think from North Africa. Or, um, I don't know, personally, I'm very interested in the, the
0: journey of
1: Ibn Battuta. Have Ibn Battuta, yeah, yeah. yeah,
0: sure. I've read quite a bit about him. It's very interesting. Sort of a, a Moroccan, um, what's his name? From Marco, Bolo, Marco Polo, Marco yeah. Polo, that's right, yeah. Uh, arguably more impressive, in fact, than, than Marco Polo's journey. Yeah, I think he was. I think he went further and did more things.
1: And I forget the name of the author, but that Arab author who um, lived among the, the um, Volga Vikings... Oh, yeah? I think they made a movie about it, The 13th Warrior, based on a Michael Crichton novel. But there's a, an historical text, yeah, it's a, he was like an emissary of of, of the Persian Empire. I, I, I don't know exactly the, anyway, some Arab empire. It sounds so vague, I'm sorry for anyone who's got a particular interest in that. <laughs> some sort of empire. And, and, and yeah, he was an emissary and, uh, to the, to the Volgo Vikings. Of okay. um, the, the Vikings, the, the Russian branch of Vikings. You yeah, know, yeah. We, we're all aware of the Vikings who went to Western Europe, etc. Yeah. but this was the branch that went um, through the rivers of Russia and right down. or was raided in Persia. And so yeah, forth, in communication. I think they served as um, bodyguards in Constantinople to the emperor and oh, yeah. to the Arab
0: kings. What are those called? Yeah, the Va- Valeringian guards or Varingian yeah. guards. I forget the name. Super interesting. Yeah, they uh, is that the, they became the Kievan Rus. Is that the same guys? Uh, I'm not sure. No, I'm not, not sure. Okay, I know the Russia was basically founded by vikings anyway i don't know how we got to that point but uh, let's, let's get back to straight, straight to episode 8 <laughs> yeah. um so yeah i've always been fascinated with with the middle east well always yeah i guess since i was a teenager um i i thought the the golden age of islam was so cool how um sort of i mean the arabs spread islam with the sword pretty much uh from from uh, you know what is it from Afghanistan from from northern India all the way to Spain you know it's like wow this is amazing um, this new idea this new this new religion is like spreading like wildfire um, but the the cool thing I thought was um, and again maybe this is not strictly historically accurate but I think the the um, the Arabs the, the the Islamic Muslim caliphates they were. Uh, very tolerant towards Christians and Jews, right? They had maybe a bit of a tax. They often taxed people for not being Muslim, but other than that, they were more or less fair. Whereas the Europeans, when they took over a new area, they were like, "Listen, Christianity, or you're done." <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm not an expert, but I think that coheres with what I've. what yeah, I've read. I'm sure there was exceptions on both sides. Uh, the, yeah. There must be exceptions on both sides, but in general, I've heard historians repeat that. Um, but to say the Renaissance, the, the Renaissance was credited with these, with the Arab Resurrection of classical
1: European, uh, you know, tracts and treatises. It was it was the Arabs who translated the likes of Plato, etc., Aristotle into Arabic. And then it was through the Arabs then that early modern Europeans rediscovered,
0: you know, their own European heritage, right. which sort of kicked off the Renaissance. Yeah, that's just phenomenal. I think that's just so cool. Um, but anyway, so that led to, um, you know, I guess uh, continued fascination with the region, um, as well as European history. I, I like both, but um, specifically Israel Palestine. Um, the history of it is—it's actually surprisingly simple because it's such a small region, and it hasn't really been um, there. Are, haven't been any global empires that, or global, I guess uh, you know, regional hegemons or trans-regional hegemons that have. Uh, come out of the the region it's mostly been under the power of someone else some other empire uh, for the vast majority of its history Um, so Israel-Palestine is considered the land between the Mediterranean Sea and the Jordan River it's a rather small area the birthplace of Judaism and Christianity Um, of course it's not the birthplace of Islam but there are many holy sites um, like we mentioned the Al-Aqsa Mosque and so forth um, the Dome of the Rock. Yeah, the Ibrahimi Mosque also, yeah. Is it? Okay, yeah. the tomb. It's also known as the tomb or the cave of the patriarchs in Hebron, yeah. Right. All right, so it's uh, obviously it's a, a, a holy city for all three major uh, Abrahamic religions. Um, so over the years, it has been controlled by uh, ancient Egypt, Persia, uh, Alexander the Great, and his successors, the Roman Empire, um, several Muslim dynasties, um, the Crusaders... Uh, the ottoman empire you know it goes on and on empires have dominated this region over the millennia um well, geo, 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 geopolitically it's a crossroads for what europe asia africa exactly India. yeah i think it's a a very important it, it's it kind of reminds me of like um, constantinople you know in terms of importance and really like a crossroads yeah napoleon also napoleon also fought there too yeah mm-hmm. did he get his butt kicked by the british or something uh he got beaten yeah i
1: think he, he was he was beaten all right um i forget the name of the battle with Accra or something but acra and he famously uh, did a propaganda coup as well when he was in jaffa i think uh, he met a bunch of i was going to bring this up in a previous episode plague victims and he greeted them and demonstrated his uh, benevolence and his his courage in the face of the plague and you know people were worried that he would catch it he didn't catch it oh yeah um he was to die many years later from stomach cancer <laughs> yeah anyway,
0: saint helena or whatever island um yeah about two hundred years ago, we just celebrated yeah. the, the anniversary anyway um so the like I said there's really starting with the Ottoman Empire that i'm more uh that I, I think is more pertinent to this episode you know I think I mean talk of course uh Zionists and jews they they like to talk about how um you know it, it is their homeland from two thousand years ago that's absolutely true uh, but it's for me, I think when you're looking at the modern day uh conflict. It's kind of under the Ottoman Empire that I wanted to talk about because I think there's, that's where the most confusion is, right? No, no one, no one really disputes that Jews lived there 2,000 years ago. I think even even Palestinians would agree they lived there 2,000 years ago. It's kind of historically confirmed. But I think people start to get a little bit on edge when you talk about uh, the immigration to to Palestine within the last 200 years. So I wanted to focus on that the the late late Ottoman Empire. Um, so. Yeah, of course, the, the Ottomans ruled uh, over Palestine from 1516 uh, up until um, the end of World War I, which is when the British um, you know, famously uh, betrayed uh, the Arabs and the... the um, who was it who they betrayed? The was Arabs?
1: It was Hussein, yeah, the McMahon-Hussein uh, Agreement, I think. They, they yeah. had promised the Arabs Palestine, they had yeah. promised the Jews Palestine, had
0: their, the eye, their own eye on it as well. Yeah, they, uh, they, they kind of made a three-way promise. Um, and, of course, they favored themselves. Um, th- one thing's for sure, we're going to throw the British under the bus this episode many a time. <laughs> yeah, yeah.
1: I'll try to be a little sympathetic, uh, you know,
0: while throwing them under the bus. But I'll, I'll sympathetically yeah. throw them under the bus. But yeah. they,
1: they bring it on themselves, to
0: be honest. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I was just mentioning to Anthony before the podcast that I found in my research um, that the, the Mamelukes, who were a really cool... Uh, sort of knightly class um, that ruled over Egypt for a few centuries, they actually won Palestine back from the Ottomans in 1832, but the British intervened and returned it to the Ottomans. <laughs> it's like, it's like they're becoming a caricature of themselves. just um, the, a, a global busybody, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and just in this region specifically, the Brits are just so active um, in kind of, uh, you know, uh, projecting their power, right? Um, anyway, so that's the that's the history of course uh Anthony went over uh briefly the what happened in the 20th century um but it started you know in the year 1900 Palestine was under ottoman rule um and at the end of world war 1 it it uh, turned over to british hands um, and then, uh, of course, the the independence for the Israelis and um, the subsequent wars, uh, 19, the war of 1948 and um, everything else is history, as we say. Uh, but that was um, so that's the history part. The demographic part um, is even more interesting to me. So starting in the 19th century uh, under the Ottomans, you see lots of immigration to uh, the area known as Palestine. For one, the Druze. So not the Jews, but the Druze, uh, which are really fascinating people if you don't know about them. Uh, they're an ethno-religious group similar to uh, how the Jews are, kind of their ethnicity and their religion are, are very closely linked. Um, and they believe in a sort of cocktail of religions and philosophies, uh, everything from like Greek philosophy, uh, Buddhism, Islam, Christianity, you name it, they got it. Uh, they believe in reincarnation and enlightenment. Um, really fascinating religion. Religion. Look up the Druze, um, a very unfortunate people too, much like the Jews. They've been persecuted time and time again over the years. Um, Anyway, you, you saw an influx of Druze people uh, to, to, to Palestine as well as uh, Circassians. Um, so the Circassians were mostly a Muslim people that lived on the northeastern coast of the Black Sea. They were genocided, uh, 1.5 million dead, um, genocided by the Russians uh, and exiled after uh, they lost a war to the Russian Empire. Uh, they got sort of kicked out um, of that area on the northeast coast of the Black Sea. Um, and then you also had uh, Bedouin tribes. So more Arabs, uh, not, not native, not indigenous to Palestine, but um, from other parts of the Arab world, immigrating to Palestine. So those are the, the non-Jewish...
1: Um, you forget about the Christians as well. The
0: Christians, yeah. There, there was an influx of Christians. And
1: even today, I mean, uh, I mean, we tend to associate Palestinians with Muslims. And it's true that the majority of them are Muslim. But I mean, there are many Christian Palestinians too. And, and quite a number of um, the PLO. Palestinian liberation organization in the late 20th century were, we're Christian, too.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, there are definitely, um, in the 20th century, you saw, you know, Jewish, Christian, and, uh, and Muslim immigration, all three, um, all three sort of religions, uh, really, uh, their numbers increased greatly in the 20th century. Um, anyway, uh, so now the Jews. So the Jews are separated kind of into old Yeshuv and new Yeshuv Jews. Um, specifically, in the 18th century, early um, sorry, 19th century, and early 20th century, um, so the old Yeshuv were generally divided into two independent communities: the Sephardim and uh, the Ashkenazim. So the the Sephardim were um, basically Jews that were kicked out of uh, Spain and Portugal uh, in the the late uh, 15th century, um, because you know the Spanish and Portuguese were hardcore Catholics, didn't want the Jews around. So they had a, you know they have an interesting language; it's kind of a mix of like Hebrew and Spanish. Um, anyway, so they, they immigrated uh, a lot in the 19th century. Um, and then also the uh, uh, the Ashkenazim is it's probably the most famous type of uh, Jewish immigrant, primarily from, uh, they often come from like, Poland, Russia, Ukraine, um, even Germany. But anyway, um, so the, the the old Yeshuv Jews were interesting because they were not at all like the Zionists. They were city dwellers. They were economically totally dependent on... Jews um, living abroad, sending money actually back to Palestine at the time, um, the Ottoman Empire. And in this period, I think there was good cohabitation between, good relations
1: between the Arabs and the Jews, um, especially in Jerusalem. I think that's where many of the Jews at the time were concentrated, in the, in the, in the city of Jerusalem. And uh, by all accounts, there were no um, sort of inter um, inter-religious interreligious.
0: Uh, Fervor, yeah, you know, no, yeah, no, no, sure Yeah, I think they were babysitting each other's kids They were, uh, yeah, they were neighbors um, So the old Yeshuv um, Kind of, they didn't embrace this idea of settling and farming And building Jewish communities outside of the city They were just, they wanted to live at the holy sites Raise their families there And kind of live off of these donations Which is really interesting I think that's a pretty rare way of life today um, So they spent their time, uh, you know, studying the Torah Uh, And uh, living off of charity. Um, Now the new yeshuv, uh, which were mostly vast majority were uh, Zionist Jews. Um, It refers to those who adopted a new approach. So based on economical independence, uh, various national ideologies, rather than um, strictly um, religious reasons for settling in the Holy Land. Um, So the the Ottoman government was not supportive supportive of the new settlers uh, for the the first and second aliyah. Uh, So the the aliyah was the, you know, uh, two times in the 19th century, uh, maybe the early 20th century, I'm not sure, where the um, Jews came kind of en masse to Palestine.
1: Yeah, I think there was a third one then in the 30s, I think it was called the Bet Aliyah. Oh, third one. Um, The aliyah kind of what signified the emigration, wasn't it? Or immigration, rather.
0: Right, right. So so the Ottoman government um actually officially restricted Jewish immigration. So I knew Jewish res- uh, immigration had been restricted under the British, but I did not know that the Ottomans also were not a fan of it. So so that the new the old Yeshuv and the new Yeshuv kind of lead us into um, Zionism and, and broader Jewish immigration uh in the twentieth century. Um, I found uh some information particularly on Arthur Rupin, who was one of the uh founders of Tel Aviv. Uh, do you know, have you read about Arthur e. Rupin? Yeah. He, he was um, a Zionist, one of the, big, the great Zionist thinkers, leaders, um, a, German, a German Jew. He actually became the director of Berlin's Bureau, Bureau for uh, Jewish Statistics from 1902 to 1907. Um, in 1908, he became the director of the Palestine Office and the Zionist Organization in Jaffa. Um, is it Jaffa or Jaffa? I say Jaffa. Jaffa. But... I don't, I don't know what the Jaffens say. <laughs> um, organizing Zionist uh, colonization in Palestine. In 1926, Rupin uh, joined the faculty of Hebrew University of Jerusalem and founded the sociology department. Um, and now um, a building there is, is named after him. So he was uh, one of the, the kind of the principal organizers of um, Jewish immigration to, to Palestine. Um, so the I found a really interesting anecdote that, actually illustrates something that you touched on before um, about how the, the it, from the Palestinian point of view, the, they actually might see the Jews as subjecting the Palestinians to something that the Jews have been su- subjected to before. Is that right? Um, well, I think that's the kind of, yeah, I guess so, generally speaking. Isn't that the, the
1: tone of much of um, what you see on the Internet as well? You know, I mean, it's the irony, I guess, that, people are underscoring that the Jews formerly, and you could argue there's still you know rampant anti-Semitism in the world, but formerly a terribly persecuted people um, are subjecting
0: another population to um, terrible persecution. Right, right. So this anecdote I found kind of supports that, and it comes from the old Yeshuv actually criticizing the new Yeshuv. Um, so the, the Zionist movement um, tried to find work for the new immigrants who arrived uh, during the second Aliyah, um, however, most were middle class and were not physically fit or, um, or knowledgeable in agricultural work. So the, the Jewish plantation owners had previously hired Arab workers who accepted um, low wages and were familiar with agriculture. The leaders of the Zionist, the Zionist movement insisted, however, that plantation owners hire uh, only Jewish workers and grant higher wages. So um, the conquest of labor was a major Zionist goal. However, this caused some turmoil in the yeshuv. Uh, for there were those who felt that they were discriminated against Arabs just as they had been discriminated against in Russia. So you had a lot of these, uh, some of these old Yeshuv who said like I kind of escaped persecution, made it to the Holy Land, and now I'm witnessing the exact persecution that I was subjected to.
1: Yeah, and that's, you know, that's something that we may not highlight enough probably in this episode, in the next episode, because we're generalizing about later Israel and Palestine. Within Israel, I mean, Israel's Current government it 's a, a very right wing populist government and it has a lot of detractors within israel there 's lots of Israeli human rights organizations that are critical um, of modern day Israeli policy. You have these new historians who are a lot more critical than the old historians in how they perceive their country 's role in, in events and their, their history um, and you, you even have organizations of former soldiers
0: who are you know supporting uh, the Palestinians, I guess. Yeah. So you you see, um, the Jewish population um, grew from forty three thousand in the late eighteen hundreds to uh, six hundred thirty thousand by nineteen forty eight. Um, versus the the one point one million million Muslims. Uh, so this is in nineteen forty eight. You had six hundred thirty thousand Jews, one point one million Muslims, and uh, one hundred fifty thousand Christians, as you mentioned. Let's not forget the Christians living uh, there too. Um, the number of Arabs in Palestine steadily increased. Um, over the centuries from the seventh. So the Arabs, they've always been the majority from around the 12th. Uh, but they were, yeah, I believe it was. So Jews were the majority in Palestine in ancient times, in antiqu- antiquity. Um, from about the, I don't know, fifth or sixth century, all the way up to the 12th century, Christians were actually the majority in the area. So with the fall of the uh, Christian state of Jerusalem in the 12th century, um, late 12th century, the uh, Arabs steadily became the majority. Uh, Arab Muslims became the the majority in in Palestine. Um, the Arab population actually mysteriously doubled under b- the Balfour Declaration as well. Um, I couldn't find any unbiased sources on whether that was a natural increase or because of Arab immigration to the area. I thought that was interesting. It's such a recent thing, um, but historians do not agree on whether uh, the, the Muslim Arab population and Christian Arab population uh, under the Balfour period did that increase mostly due to just have lots of babies, or was it more immigration? Whether
1: it was a natural demographic uh, increase. Yeah. I'm not sure. Perhaps a combination of both. I think, from what I've read, as this region developed with the British mandate, under the British mandate, and with the um, increasing influence of the Yishuv, which I suppose we should clarify by saying this is what the this is what the Jewish colony or society was named. Before it became Israel, right? Um, it probably became a more attractive economy, and probably also attracted, you know, outliers into the region. Um, you mentioned the Balfour Declaration. I think uh, we should uh, perhaps talk about
0: that a little. Yeah, yeah. Let's go for the Balfour. Um, this was, of course, after World War One. Uh, di- during, the, or it was during during World War One, wasn't it? Um, so, okay.
1: Well. The Balfour Declaration is the foundation stone for modern Israel, and it was unprecedented in international law at the time. Um, It was a public statement issued by the British government in 1917, announcing support for the establishment of a national home for the Jewish people in Palestine. Then, as you have described, an Ottoman region with a a small minority Jewish population. I think at the time of the Balfour Declaration, it was at about 7%. Um, The declaration had two indirect consequences, the emergence of a Jewish state and a chronic state of conflict between Arabs and Jews throughout the Middle East. According to a UN website, it ultimately led to partition and to the problem as it exists today. Any understanding of the Palestine issue, therefore, requires some examination of this declaration, which can be considered the root of the problem of Palestine. The problem of Palestine, just as an aside, I find that language problematic. I, I, I have like old school Irish history books, you know, I guess from the British perspective. And it's the, I- the Ireland problem, the Irish problem, yeah. as though, you know, your problems to be solved or bombed, you know. Yeah. Um, two main schools of thought have been developed on the question of the primary driving force behind the declaration. One is that it resulted primarily from the activity and skill of designists. Whereas, according to others, it was the work of hard-headed pragmatists motivated by British imperial interests in the Middle East. And uh, British motives behind this decision were largely geopolitical. Okay, we mentioned that this was a, a very strategic part of the world for basically every power, regional power uh, throughout history. Um, it was consistent with the pursuit of the government's wider agenda to partition the Ottoman Empire. Um, it was kind of erroneously based on the myth of Jewish influence. Historians agree that Britain's leaders hoped that a formal declaration in favor of Zionism would help gain Jewish support for the allies in neutral countries in the United States and especially in Russia, where the anti-Semitic Tsarist government had just been overthrown with the help of Russia's Jewish population. Some historians, for example, James um, Gelvin at uh, UCLA, suggest that this reflects patrician anti-Semitism, a sort of reverse racism in the overestimation of Jewish power in both the U.S., and in Russia. Um, if the British uh, were dominant in Palestine also, um, this gave them dominance um, over a crucial land bridge between their territories of India and Egypt. And this was uh, an essential post-war goal uh, for Lloyd George, the Prime Minister at the time. Um, a Jewish presence in Palestine, it was felt, would strengthen Britain's position on the Suez Canal and reinforce the route to their imperial dominion in India which is terribly ironic because later, as we will see, in the 1930s, during the Jewish insurgency against the British mandate, the the British interests were in currying favor of the Arabs and no longer the Jews. Uh, But we'll get to that shortly. There was also an early interwar zeitgeist, which was internationalism, and the establishment of a Zionist state in Palestine under British protection would accomplish this goal while also following the Allied aim expressed at the Versailles um, conference. Of self-determination for small nations, and on a side note, I'm always looking for some way of connecting this to my own country of Ireland. Um, at the Versailles uh, conference, which was supposed to determine um, self-determination for for the world's small nations uh, following the zeitgeist of internationalism, Ireland had every reason to expect rapidly to become recognised as the first of these small nations clamoring for um, self-determination. Um, Yet ironically or hypocritically, neither the Irish Republic nor its resem- representatives were admitted at Versailles. Um, Wilson's wartime idealism, it seems, was moderated by bipartisan diplomacy, not dissimilar, I guess, to U.S. diplomacy in today's conflict. Um, similar situation, a similar situation or a similar fate uh, was in store for Egypt,
0: South Africa, and Vietnam. Yeah, or like maybe China comes to mind, the way that Taiwan wants to get a seat at the table, and yeah. the U.S. is like, well, one China policy. Did you hear about John Cena? Yeah, what did he do? He apologized for accidentally calling Taiwan a country? Or... Accidentally calling a country. <laughs> he called Taiwan a country, and uh, the Chinese were displeased, <laughs> and uh, he apologized. Yeah, I think I think he was probably under, he probably forgot to read the fine print of the movie. and uh, the, con- the contract that he had signed by the yeah. production company. <laughs> like, do not recognize. When I lived
1: in China, there were, th- three things we were supposed to avoid talking about. And they, were, they were referred to as the three T's. Tiananmen, Taiwan, and Tibet. Ah, Tibet, yeah, yeah, yeah okay. I search searching for the we third were, one. Yeah, we were cautioned to avoid these topics. Um, the Paris Peace Conference, to go back to 1919, um, 19, um, resigned Irish nationalism to the realpolitik of peace in Europe. And it was only after signing the Anglo-Irish Treaty in December 19, 1921, our own partition plan, that was 100 years ago this year um there's there's Congratulations. lots of here. well i don't know if it's something uh we should be congratulated for yes we ultimately became independent but we lost our six counties so in a way i, I i'm reading kind of you know uh comparisons uh, yeah, you know absolutely. between uh between the the palestine um the history of Palestine and, and, and our own history. And after Ireland was recognized as the Irish Free State in 1922, it was only then that it was admitted into League of Nations, um, which was a sort of Pyrrhic victory for the defeated Irish Republic, you know? So it's kind of, it's this double standard, you know? Yeah. You Ireland, you've got Egypt, you've got uh, Vietnam, South Africa, who are sort of all under the, you know, the influence of Britain, uh, Britain, France, you know? Mm their um, appeals for self-determination are sort of cast aside or put aside. But uh, Britain was quite willing at this time to to um, support Zionism in Palestine. You know, it's all, all these geopolitical interests. Yeah, yeah, it's fascinating. Um, the declaration, however, I mean, it wasn't applauded by everyone. Uh, there was some disagreement within the British establishment about the Balfour Declaration. The local Christian and Muslim community of Palestine, which you refer to, uh, who constituted almost 90% of the population, strongly opposed the declaration, as described by the Palestinian-American philosopher Edward Said in 1979. It was perceived as being A, uh, made by a European power, B, about a non-European territory, C, in a flat disregard of both the presence and the wishes of the native majority resident in that territory, and D, it took the form of a promise about this uh, same territory to another uh, foreign group. Um, In the broader Arab world, the declaration was seen as a betrayal of the British wartime understandings with the Arabs, with whom a previous commitment had been made in the mcmahon Hussein correspondence in exchange for launching the Arab revolt, which we mentioned earlier. And ultimately, Britain's involvement in this and mandatory Palestine became one of the most controversial parts of its empire's history and damaged its reputation in the Middle East for generations. And according to the historian Elizabeth Monroe, measured by British interests alone, the declaration was one of the greatest mistakes in its imperial history. The British government acknowledged in 1939 that the local population's views should have been taken into account and recognized only four years ago, in 2017, that the, that the declaration should have called for protection of the Palestinian Arabs' political rights. Hmm. Um, I remember learning that at school, all right. Well, some of that. <laughs> um. When you and I last spoke about this uh, privately, that is not on the podcast, you said um, you used to think that the uh, quote-unquote shitty borders argument <laughs> as a causal factor for today's conflict
0: was a strong one, but that now you're less convinced. Can
1: you explain what you what you meant by uh, that?
0: Yeah, the shitty borders argument is uh, that the European powers uh, during decolonization, well, during colonization itself, but um, the effects weren't seen until after colonization, really, uh, that they kind of draw these borders on a map. Uh, You can kind of see them. They're usually like straight lines, or uh, they're definitely not um, drawn by rivers or other geographical um, landmarks. Uh, You can see them in Africa, in the Middle East, in uh, maybe some parts of Asia, too, I'm not sure. But um probably Papua New Guinea, the yeah, island Papua New Guinea, it's like split in half perfectly, right? <laughs> um that's probably the Brits or someone someone did that. Um so the argument is that these these quote shitty borders result in chaos because um once the Europeans move out, these borders are have been drawn, in some cases, it seems willy-nilly, uh, just whatever was uh, made sense to the geographer um or whoever was in charge of it. And it results in drawing lines straight down the middle of ethnic populations, uh, grouping people together that don't normally uh, go together, like maybe um, people who don't speak the same language, don't uh, maybe have hostile religions, um, so on and so forth. So this happens again and again. You can see this. Um, I learned about it in anthropology class and sociology class, um, that these uh, borders are, are an issue later on, and they, they lead to civil wars and unrest and conflict. Um, and if the Europeans, if the silly European colonizers, had only drawn the borders better, um, respecting ethnic lines, respecting religious lines, and um, you know access to the sea, and you, know, you know there's like a list of things that they should have respected, um, if they had only done that, then we could have avoided many of these conflicts. So I think that argument holds weight. Um, it holds its, uh, it holds some water. But I've told you that I find it less convincing because. I think that now people have come to use this uh, shitty borders argument as a crutch to try to explain the behavior of people um, when I think there's a, just a lot more to it than that. I think it's a kind of a gross oversimplification um, and I think of countries like um i don 't know Spain or Belgium where uh, you know there you have several different type types of people um within one border and it, there is conflict, right? The, you know, you can feel it. If you've ever been to Belgium, there's tension between the Flemish, uh, and the, um, the Walloons, the, the French speaking Southern Belgians. Um, and, or if you go to Spain, you know, go to Catalonia, you have, you know, some Catalans want independence, some don't, etc. You, you know, the drill. Um, but I just think that, you know, having a, a border, um, poorly drawn is, is, is kind of maybe overstated to explain the, um, these conflicts. And uh, I think it's, Something to keep in mind when you're reading about these stories. Um,
1: at the, Well, at the risk of going beyond the scope of this episode, um, I get what you're saying, but I, th- I think perhaps I give it maybe a little more credence. Um, I don't see how one can deny the influence of um, boundaries in, in the history of this, as well as some other conflicts. Um, I believe the Israel-Palestine conflict is fundamentally a boundary dispute because it's really, even though we're talking about lots of the history here and ancient history too, it's really just a conflict about land. Um, I'd certainly caution, like you said, against the fallacy of the single cause, um, that there was only one causal factor to the to the modern the impasse. But the enduring quality of the conflict, I would argue, is uh, quote-unquote shitty borders, as you uh, colourfully put it to me, (laughs) uh, which are one of its axiomatic features. Um, The very fact of defining a boundary was among the causal factors of this conflict. Um, There was no boundary until the British proposed one, and it's never been accepted by both parties. Even the Green Line was only intended as a demarcation line rather than a permanent border. Um, Territorial limits in Palestine are particularly complicated because the polity was traditionally a population unit, like we discussed in your demographic section, uh, rather than a territorial unit. And it was only its entrance into the modern international state system brought by colonization that required establishing territorial limits. Uh, Then there's the question of Jerusalem, um, a sacred boundary, which each side claims as its capital. And that was originally to have been internationalized, but its eastern part was annexed after the Six-Day War. Jumping ahead of ourselves there. Um, To this day, the international consensus is that East Jerusalem Does not belong to Israel, hence the outrage at Trump's inflammatory decision to relocate the U.S. embassy. uh, Embassy (laughs) to relocate the U.S. embassy there, Um, which I'm glad to see that uh, Biden at least is opening up a a Palestinian consulate in Jerusalem too. Now, Uh, there's also the related issue of ethnic overhang, where in Gaza, the West Bank, and Israel, Palestinians are segregated and policed. And even within the West Bank, which we we talked about at the beginning of today's episode, territory that's nominally Palestinian but is in reality under military occupation and has only limited self-rule, normal human interaction is interrupted by military checkpoints and illegal settlements that are balkanizing the ever-diminishing territory, Uh, not to mention the separation barrier in the West Bank along the Green Line. Israel describes it as a necessary security barrier against terrorism, whereas Palestinians consider it a racial segregation or apartheid wall. And I don't believe these have to be mutually exclusive. Um, and 85% of this barrier is inside the West Bank, like going up to 18 kilometers from the West Bank border and isolating about 9% of the land and 25,000 Palestinians from the rest of the West Bank. So like you were saying, there are no straight lines in nature. Uh, so you only have to look at the legacy of post-colonialism in Africa and on the Indian subcontinent, uh, if not the Middle East, to recognize the folly of the colonial powers and their their shitty borders. Um, who had no more right to meddle in them than, say, the Spanish and the Portuguese to sign that crazy treaty of Tordesillas uh, that divided the world between them? You remember? Oh yeah, was that yeah. 1492 or something? Yeah, somewhere around there. That's your sphere of influence, and that's ours, and whatever yeah. on that side of the world is yours, and whatever on this side of the globe is ours. And
0: yep, that's yeah. why they speak Portuguese in Brazil and uh, Spanish in the other countries yeah. in South America. Yeah.
1: I'm pretty, I'm pretty critical of these colonial powers, but that's my national bias showing, revealing itself.
0: So Mandatory Palestine was a geopolitical entity established between 1920 and 1948 under the terms of the League of Nations mandate for Palestine. The formal objective of the League of Nations mandate system was to administer parts of the defunct Ottoman Empire, which had been in control of most of the Middle East since the 16th century, quote, until such time as they are able to stand alone, end quote.
1: In keeping with the colonial narrative um, about the creation of Israel espoused by most Palestinians and some Israelis, um, Mandate is viewed as a euphemism for what is in essence a colony or protectorate uh, to administer Palestine and Transjordan. And according to this narrative, the mandate legitimized Britain's post-war control over the region. Yeah, it's a good choice of words, huh? The mandate. When you wait, actually, yeah, this 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 history is rich in euphemisms. <laughs> rich in euphemisms. I won't even. That's a whole other episode. Um, during during the mandate uh, period, the area saw the rise of nationalist movements in both the Jewish and Arab communities, and, com- and competing interests of the two populations led to the 1936 to 1939 Arab revolt and. As I said a few moments ago, this is perhaps where my national bias makes itself felt. As I can't help but read this as analogous to the history of nationalist revolution in Ireland, Uh, the dynamics are at least superficially similar. And for me, this is really where the modern conflict is born. Yeah. In this crucible of competing nationalisms.
0: Yeah. And just before you move on, I just want to jump back um, Mm. real quick on demographics, uh, just to give the listeners an idea of how many Jews, how many Christians, how many Muslims are we talking about? So uh, in 1914, we have about 94,000 Jews in Palestine versus the 70,000 Christians um, and 525,000 Muslims. Um, By 1931, uh, so almost 20 years later, we have 175,000 Jews, so the population almost doubled between 1914 and 1931, Um, 89,000 Christians, so a small increase of about Uh, I don't know 15% uh, in the Christian population Uh, and then 760,000 Muslims so Muslims and the number of Muslims increased um, oh roughly 40% or so Um, and now uh, so that's about uh, just a million people about a million people living in Palestine at that time Um, just to give the listeners an idea of the demography okay
1: I think at this stage there is about 30% Jews I, th- I think by the '30s during British mandate Palestine.
0: Uh, yeah, that looks about right. Yeah, maybe even a bit less. Yeah. Okay.
1: Yeah. Okay. Twenty-seven
0: percent, or yeah, around there. I think. Something like that. Yeah. So between 1931 and 1936, the Jewish population more than doubled, um, increasing the increasing the Jewish population share from 17 to 27 percent. All right. 27. Okay. Yeah. Um, Attendant Jewish agency land purchases, which often involved the British police expelling peasant farmers, included covenants forbidding forbidding the sale of land to non-Jews, which were later incorporated into Israeli law. Thus, 92% of modern Israel cannot be sold to anyone who is not legally Jewish. This all peaked in 1936, the year in which the Palestinians began a full-scale nationwide revolt against what they saw as a British bias towards the Jews. This appears to have been the case, although clearly all populations were guilty of committing violence against each other. Uh,
1: The consequences of the Arab revolt um, meant that over 10% of the adult male Palestinian Arab population between 20 and 60 was killed, wounded, imprisoned, or exiled. 10%. This had a negative effect on Palestinian Arab leadership, social cohesion, and military capabilities, and contributed, in fact, to the outcome of the 1948 war. On the Jewish side... The revolt led to the formation and development of underground militias, which were to prove decisive in 1948. It became clear that the two communities could not be reconciled, and the idea of partition was born. Lastly, the British responded to Arab opposition with the White Paper of 1939, which severely restricted Jewish land purchase and immigration. Importantly, the White Paper also rejected the concept of partition of Palestine into Jewish and Arab states and announced that the country would be turned into an independent, binational state with an Arab majority, a single state. Interestingly, soon after the start of the Arab uprising in Palestine, the Peel Commission proposed a partition of Palestine that involved a compulsory resettlement of some Arab and Jewish inhabitants. It was not acceptable either to the Arab or to the Jewish leaders, although David Ben-Gurion remarked in 1937 that the compulsory transfer of the Arabs from the valleys of the proposed Jewish state could give us something which we have never had, even when we stood on our own during the days of the First and Second Temples, sort of indicating that it would be in their interest. Um, and that's another euphemism, in fact, transfer. You read that word a lot, transfer, transfer, which basically means cleansing. Yeah. And you read that by the British, you read it by the Israelis, you read it in the Palestinian histori- historiography too. Honestly, I mean... When I approached this, I think I told you, I I tried to approach it as a as an historian would. It's impossible. Um, I tried to put out of my mind um, the events post nineteen forty eight or nineteen forty nine. I tried to forget or not know about the nineteen sixty seven war, about the Yom Kippur war, about the later intifadas, about the permanent issues, you know, um, the permanent status issues of settlements and the, the security fence and the refugees, I tried to think, okay, just based on this uh, knowledge, historical knowledge, if I were alive at this time, I mean, how, how might I feel about this? You know, it's an impossible task, but, you know, I tried to do it. And, you know, I can sympathize um, on some level with the Zionist quest for a homeland, and I can even understand their choice of Palestine. And acknowledging that most Palestinians would unlikely be able to accommodate this next concession I can understand why, after the passage of the Nuremberg Laws in 1935, Jews decided to ignore the immigration quota established by the British. And anyway, by that stage, they already had a significant foothold in Palestine and the bell, so to speak, could not be unwrung. The fact that neither side accepted the recommendation of the Peel Commission is noteworthy. Uh, You have to remember that neither the Jews nor the Arabs had our benefit of hindsight. Neither side knew how, by the end of the century and beyond, this would all play out. And it's for the same reason that I can understand why the Palestinians did not accept the terms of the UN partition plan. Why settle for half of what you consider to be rightfully yours, especially when you constitute a numerical majority? And why the Jews did, as it legitimized their presence and gave them what they never had, a state. And as Ben-Gurion knew, the Jews had everything to gain, whereas the Arabs had everything to lose. And I try to compare this to, I don't try to, I just make this comparison, I suppose, um, to Irish partition choices 100 years ago. You know i kind of see the jews acceptance of partition as being equivalent to michael collins's fateful decision um to agree to the partition of an irish free state in northern ireland um, and in the subsequent civil war because the irish fought each other because of that uh, decision um, the irish free state uh, were the ultimate victors collins's logic was the same as ben gurian's um ben saw it as a stepping stone to greater things And the Arabs did not accept partition, much as Eamon de Valera's party did not accept partition in Ireland. And today, those six counties have not been recovered. So after the Arab revolt uh, was the Jewish insurgency um, between 1944 and 1948. Can you tell us a little bit about that,
0: Tim? Sure, yeah. The Jewish insurgency was a paramilitary campaign carried out by Zionist underground groups against uh, British rule, Um, kind of a resistance. There's a general agreement among historians that the Jewish underground in Palestine refrained from an open struggle against Britain, as long as the joint enemy of Germany was still at large. This approach changed towards the beginning of 1944, with the general feeling that the Axis forces in Europe were nearing their defeat. The Irgun, one of the Jewish militias, decided to shift its policy from ceasefire to an active campaign of violence, as long as it would not hurt the war effort against Nazi Germany. The rebellion caused growing alarm with the Jewish Agency, which saw the revolt as a challenge to its own authority. In October 1944, uh, the Jewish Agency decided to take action to suppress the insurrection, uh, and it waged a campaign which would be known ominously as the hunting season.
1: Yeah, I've always... I've always been especially struck by British attitudes to Palestine at this time. Um, In December 1942, when the mass murder of European Jewry became known to the Allies, the British continued to refuse to change their policy of limited immigration or to admit Jews from Nazi-controlled Europe in numbers outside the quota imposed by the White Paper. And the Royal Navy prevented ships with Jewish refugees from reaching Palestine. Some ships carrying Jewish refugees were turned back towards Europe The british also stopped all attempts by palestinian jews to bribe the nazis into freeing european jews i mean i understand having read the histories of this period the explanation for britain's position on this issue but it's striking how discordant it is with the pro-zionist posture of the balfour era a mere 30 years previously it demonstrates the degree to which britain's geopolitical interests had changed how such interests can change in so short a time and how ultimately The British were the authors of their own fate. Um, The British were resistant to the idea of Palestine as a refuge for the Jews of Europe as it would antagonize the Arabs and threaten British hegemony and economic interests in the Middle East. The new Labour Foreign Secretary, Ernest Bevan, believed, for instance, that displaced Holocaust survivors should be resettled in Europe instead of Palestine. British officials in the occupied German zones tried to halt Jewish immigration by refusing to recognize the Jews as a national group. And demanding that they return to their places of origin in 1947 mi6 the secret service launched operation embarrass a clandestine operation to blow up ships in italian ports that were preparing to take jewish refugees to palestine we never hear about this wow that's mad five such attacks were carried out in order to prevent jewish illegal migrants reaching palestine A naval blockade was established the british government which had known for some time that it would be unable to contain jewish immigration established internment camps Internment camps after concentration camps. The PR on that is just terrible. For example, on the island of Cyprus to detain all illegal immigrants. About 53,000 Jews, mostly Holocaust survivors, passed through these holding facilities. All of this obviously earned Britain bad publicity, particularly in the United States, and it was repeatedly rebuked by the Truman administration, demonstrating Britain's diminished standing in global politics, undoubtedly still a major player, but its mantle at this stage had passed to the United States.
0: Yeah, I guess I'm a little surprised that the British wanted to restrict immigration that badly. I guess they were really worried uh, that that would disrupt their their power in the region. And they were concerned about the Arab feelings on the matter.
1: Right. So it was was almost as if they were trying to close Pandora's box, but it was too late. Yeah. Yeah. Um, In my opinion, the Arabs and Jews in these two um, insurgencies were fighting separate but similar struggles against the British and each other. And I'm able to sympathize with the Jewish insurgency, but not at the exclusion of sympathizing with the Arab Revolt. And interestingly, Tim,
0: why do you think it's called the Arab Revolt, where it's the Jewish insurgency? I guess the, <laughs> well, insurgency sounds better. <laughs> I'm
1: sure George Orwell would have something to say about that. And in fact, the memoir by the leader of the Irgun, a guy called Menachem Begin, um, was called The Revolt. And in fact, it was it, it was, it was um, used by many uh, nationalistic uh, movements, military, uh, paramilitary movements uh, throughout history. I mean, they found a copy of this, ironically, Jewish book um, on bodies in Afghanistan belonging to Al-Qaeda militants. And it was used by the IRA in Northern Ireland in the 1970s. It was basically what the catcher in the rye was to misanthropes because as you know, the guy who shot John Lennon was found with a copy of the catcher in the rye on him, etc. You know, it's got this kind of weird legacy. Yeah. This um this book by Menachem Begin, the revolt, was sort of like the catcher in the Rye for international terrorists. It's wow. an interesting thing. Um the closer you read the history of the period, the less black and white the situation appears, which is always the case. For instance, during the nineteen forty five British election Labour pledged that if they returned to power, they would revoke the White Paper of 1939, permit free Jewish immigration to Palestine, and even to transfer, again this euphemism for ethnic cleansing, of Arabs, and turn Palestine into a Jewish national home that would gradually evolve into an independent state. As it happened, Bevan decided to maintain heavy restrictions on Jewish immigration, favoring the White Paper's policy of turning Palestine into an Arab state with a Jewish minority uh, that would have political and economic rights rights. lest the creation of a Jewish state would inflame Arab opinion and jeopardize Britain's position as a dominant power in the Middle East. Both Arabs and Jews were probably justified in viewing each other with distrust and fearing the worst for their future in Palestine. Neither could know for sure what way the wind was blowing. And There's also a lesson in this, I think, about the myth of exceptionalism, this fallacious idea that one side is somehow more righteous than the other. Both Arabs and Jews engaged in terrorism to achieve their goals, the Zionists engaging in exactly the same terrorist tactics when opposed by Britain that they condemn the Palestinians for today. I don't mean that as an apology for terrorism, but to underscore the dearth of empathy for the Palestinian narrative on the part of Israel. The Jewish insurgency on the heels of the Arab revolt broke the will of the British in Palestine, and the general consensus was that it was time to leave. In my mind, that's a crucial difference between the British and today's Israelis, as Prime Minister Golda Meir once told a young Senator Biden on his first overseas trip in 1973, Israel's secret weapon in its conflict with the Arabs is that they've no place else to go. Um Menachem Begin, uh, the leader of the Irgun whom I mentioned just a moment ago, believed that the insurgency would turn Palestine into a glass house with the world's attention focused on it and that the British, faced with a choice between continued repression or withdrawal, would in the end choose to withdraw. Today The shoe is on the other foot. Palestine is still a glass house with the world's attention focused on it, but this time it's largely focused on Israel, not Britain. Um, Israel, with no place to withdraw, is faced with a choice between continued repression or changing its policy towards Palestinians. The world was rightly concerned to assure the security of the Jews after the horrors of the Holocaust. Um, The Palestinians, however, footed the bill. A variety of players were responsible. It can't all be laid at the feet of Israel, We've already discussed the part played by Britain. The US became increasingly invested in the prospect of a Jewish state under Truman. Um, Other Western powers also played a part. Nor had Palestine's covetous neighbors, the Palestinians' interests at heart, as we shall see. And the Palestinian Arabs themselves, for reasons both within and without their control, failed to hit the mark. Just finally, although the insurgency played a major role in persuading the British to quit Palestine, other factors also influenced british policy britain facing a deep economic crisis and heavily dependent on the u.s uh, was facing a massive financial burden over many of its colonies military bases and commitments abroad and at the same time britain had also lost the centerpiece of the rationale of its middle east policy after the end of the british raj in colonial india sure
0: sure yeah um i guess if you were to defend the british just for a moment (laughs) <laughs> as an Irishman uh well I
1: felt bad I felt I felt bad for them when you read the history I read a um an interesting essay which I'll I'll cite at the end of the episode um basically about the British um experience of of the mandate and the challenges they faced and um you know it made me feel sympathetic toward them and uh, they made the right move leaving but I mean they made a mess um but there were some shocking things, too, that I discovered, too, about uh, British military abuses that reminded me of stuff, as you said, about Vietnam, for, for example. And I, I discovered, too, that Montgomery, who we discussed in our, I think, cheesy Eating Surrender Monkeys episode, in our pilot, um, he was actually stationed in Palestine at this time. This is before World War II. And he actually banned the press um, yeah, from, 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 from his area of control because he didn't want them reporting on, on what his troops were doing. Mm. It's kind of Mm. a skeleton in Montgomery's closet
0: yeah. Well, for me, I guess it's so difficult to de- defend the British in any way because colonialism is pretty much universally, se- universally now seen as a, a bad thing and, and a, a mistake, kind of like slavery, just like a black stain on the history of a country. You know, I know the French are ashamed of it. Uh, the, the British are probably, I mean, you probably still have some who are like rah-rah, like, uh ah, colonialism, well, we, we well, built India, you know. Well, re-
1: recently in the news, we were talking about this yesterday, um, obviously in private, uh, we weren't recording. Um, how Germany just came out yesterday and apologized for a uh, genocide in um, in its former colonies in not in Tanzania, in, yeah. Tanzania, in Tanzania yeah. um, and uh, President Macron the day previous
0: uh, apologized not for well, it. its no, genocide, yeah, he but he for it. I guess they were pissed that he didn't apologize. He 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 quote uh, recognized French guilt or okay. something like that, but Re- he fell short of an apology. Okay for yeah. the role of uh of the French uh, forces Rwanda. in
1: Rwanda that yeah. prevented to do all they could to prevent the genocide there. Yeah.
0: So, yeah, it's uh but it yeah, I mean it's just that it for me um bashing the British it's it, I think it's a big piece of it. I think you can lay a lot of the blame on the British. I'm just um like I said, I, I just don't want to Uh, use the the shitty borders or the brits as like this crutch to blame everything no no i'm not i yeah yeah fair enough i'm not suggesting that you know
1: we blame everything on the british and the the shitty borders it's just fascinating reading and how they're you know i just find it fascinating just given my background um i'm attracted to
0: that story you know yeah um but yeah sure sure yeah um so let's uh, th- that was that was Palestine from ancient times to, to 1948 or 1947. The, yeah, the there. Jewish insurgency. So mm.
1: I guess the last thing we uh, we may wish to discuss, really, in, mm. in terms of history, the is the war, the 1947 mm. 48 civil war, the unofficial phase of the war, um, and then the
0: first Arab-Israeli war. Okay. So um, in September 1947, uh, the British cabinet decided to evacuate Palestine, uh, and on November 29th, the United Nations recommended. Uh, partitioning Palestine into Jewish and Arab states, more shitty borders. Almost immediately, the mandate collapsed into civil war between the Jewish and Arab populations. Five and a half months of civil war in Palestine saw a decisive Jewish victory. Officially, however, the British mandate ended on May 15, 1948, with the state of Israel declaring its independence on the previous day. This was followed by the outbreak of the 1948 Arab-Israeli War between Israel and its neighboring Arab states. The war ended with the territory of mandatory Palestine divided among the state of Israel. Uh, the Hashemite Kingdom of Jordan, which annexed uh, the territory of the West Bank um, of the Jordan River, and, of course, uh, Egypt, which annexed uh, Gaza, the Gaza Strip. From all that I've ever read about this particular
1: war, uh, which is known to the Israelis, obviously, as the War of Independence, but to the Palestinians as Al-Nakba, or the Catastrophe, um, the point at which they lost it all, and seven hundred and fifty thousand of them fled or were expelled elsewhere, which created the refugee pr- crisis. That is the longest-running refugee crisis in the world today. Um, there are some bones of a contention in the debate within his, Israeli historiography, and the most often debated points about this war, from what I've seen, um, is the so called, these so-called myths, the myth of Arab-Israeli military balance. The fact that they were either evenly matched or that they were outnumbered or outmatched. Um, the nature of Israeli Jordan relations, um, um, Arab war aims, and, uh, and like I just mentioned briefly, the, the origins of the Palestinian refugee problem. These four issues are what, what seem to be most often debated when historians write about, about the war of 1948. According to the Israeli historian Avi Shlaim: the myth fostered by official and semi-official accounts of the 1948 war is that the Israeli victory was achieved in the face of insurmountable odds. Israel is pictured in these accounts as a little Jewish David confronting a giant Arab Goliath, he writes. The war is portrayed as a desperate, costly, and heroic struggle for survival, with plucky little Israel fighting off marauding armies from seven Arab states. Israel's ultimate victory in this war is treated like nothing short of a miracle, And for such a heroic, moralistic account, I I suggest you read Chaim Herzog's The Arab-Israeli Wars. Um, Chaim Herzog is a fascinating individual. He became the sixth president of Israel. He was born in Ireland. His father was the chief um, rabbi um, of all synagogues in Ireland. I think you can actually visit his house. There's a plaque in Dublin um, above the door saying where he was born. Um, He fought uh, for the British in World War II. He landed at D-Day he liberated the concentration camps um Chaim herzog he was involved he fought in the uh in the jewish insurgency he fought in the 1948 war he represented israel in the united nations he participated in uh, very tough debates um, within the united nations defending um, israel's uh, position positions um so he's a he's a very impressive figure um but if you read his history of the wars you get that you know um, you get that uh, that version of events Um, and the heroism of the Jewish fighters is not in question nor is there any doubt about the heavy price that they paid for their victory and if I were Israeli frankly I would undoubtedly be very proud and to an Israeli of a certain stripe their national pantheon isn't short of military heroes. Nevertheless according to the new historians the nascent Israel state was not as hopelessly outgunned as the official history relates. It enjoyed a number of advantages that are commonly downplayed by the old-school historians. For instance, it was better prepared and better organized when the struggle for Palestine reached its crucial stage than its local opponents. The Haganah, another one of these militias, Jewish militias, which is renamed the Israel Defense Forces at this time, could draw on a large reserve of Western-trained and homegrown officers with military experience. It had an effective centralized control and a contrast to the armies of the Arab states, especially those of Iraq and Egypt. It had short internal lines of communication that enabled it to operate with greater speed and mobility during the unofficial phase of the war the yeshuv gradually gained the upper hand in the struggle against its palestinian opponents its armed forces were larger better trained and more technologically advanced and despite some initial setbacks these advantages enabled it to win decisively against the palestinian arabs even when the arab states committed the regular armies marking the beginning of the official phase of the war the yeshuv retained its numerical superiority at each stage of the war The IDF significantly outnumbered the Arab forces, raged against it, and according to the historians Sima Flappen and Benny Morris, uh, by the final stage of the war, its superiority ratio was nearly 2 to 1. And a study based on access to IDF sources supports this revisionist line by showing that the United Nations arms embargo hurt the Arabs much more than hurt the IDF. Um, The IDF's gravest weakness during the first round of fighting was in firepower. The Arab armies were much better equipped, especially with heavy arms. But during the first truce, in violation of the UN arms embargo, Israel imported from all over Europe, but especially from Czechoslovakia, rifles, machine guns, armoured cars, field guns, tanks, airplanes, and all kinds of ammunition. Um, These illicit arms acquisitions enabled the IDF to tip the scales decisively in its own favour. In the second round of fighting, the IDF moved on to the offensive, and in the third round, it picked off the Arab armies and defeated them one by one, the final outcome of the war. Schleim writes, was thus not a miracle but a fateful reflection of the underlying Arab Israeli military balance. In this war, as in all wars, the stronger side ultimately prevailed. Um, The other myth is the myth of Arab war aims, which is kind of associated um, with the myth of military balance. And the conventional Zionist explanation is that the motive behind the invasion was to destroy the newly born Jewish state and to throw the Jews into the sea. And according to others, there was a disparity, however, between pan-Arab rhetoric and reality. Israeli historian Yoav Gelber writes, The Yishuv perceived the peril of an Arab invasion as threatening its very existence. Having no real knowledge of the Arabs' true military capabilities, the Jews took Arab propaganda literally, quite understandably, uh, preparing for the worst and reacting accordingly. The conventional view of the Arab-Israeli conflict is that of a simple bipolar affair in which a monolithic and implacably hostile Arab world is against the Jews. In truth, the Arab rulers were deeply divided among themselves on how to deal with the Zionist challenge, and one of these rulers, King Abdullah of Jordan, favoured accommodation rather than confrontation, cutting a deal with the Jewish agency to partition Palestine at the expense of the Palestinians. In this period, King Abdullah was the only Arab head of state who was willing to accept the principle of partition and to coexist peacefully with a Jewish state after the dust had settled. His objective in sending his army to Palestine was not to prevent the establishment of a Jewish state, but to make himself master of the Arab part of Palestine, which meant preventing the establishment of an independent Palestinian state. The Arab Legion made every effort to avert a head-on collision, and with the exception of one or two minor incidents, made no attempt to encroach on the territory allocated to the Jewish state by the UN cartographers. Um, Here I'm paraphrasing a lot, um, these historians, by the way. Um... And it, it it explains also why Palestinians and Jordanians don't always get on very well today. So all of that that I just recounted, and I'm coming to a close now, detracts from the heroic version that pictures Israel as ringed by an unbroken circle of Arab hostility and having to repel a concerted all-out attack on all fronts. Um, King Farouk of Egypt got involved in part to check the growth of King Abdullah of Jordan as well. Um... Judged by the standards of the Realpolitik camp, the collusion between the Zionists and the Hashemite king Abdullah in Jordan was neither extraordinary nor particularly reprehensible. Both sides acted in a pragmatic fashion to advance their own interest. A problem arises only as a result of the claim that Israel's conduct was based on morality rather than self-interest. Um, and again, finally, quoting Av- um, shlaim the historian. There was no single Arab plan of action during the 1948 war. On the contrary, it was the inability of the Arabs to coordinate their diplomatic and military plans that was in large measure responsible for the disaster that overwhelmed them. The reality was one of national selfishness, with each Arab state looking after its own interests. What was supposed to be a holy war against the Jews quickly turned into a general land grab. Division and discord within the ramshackle Arab coalition deepened with every successive defeat. Israel's leaders knew about these divisions and exploited them. The old historians, by concentrating almost exclusively on the military operations of 1948, ended up with the familiar picture of an Arab Israeli war in which Arabs were united by a single purpose, all were bent on the defeat and destruction of Israel. In retrospect, however, the political lineup on the Arab side in 48 appears much more complicated, and the motives behind the invasion of Palestine much more mixed. <laughs> Okay, Tim, let's put a pin in the history for now. And in the interest of full disclosure, especially as in a subsequent episode, we're going to be discussing the more recent history of this conflict. What do you say we lay our cards on the table? Where, where's your head at? Where do, you, where do you stand with respect to
0: all of this? Oh, gosh. Um, so I confess that uh, growing up, I was pretty, pretty vehemently pro-Palestinian. Uh, seem pretty cut and dry to me, <laughs> but, um, I don't really want to say, I mean, now I, am I de- definitely, I guess I'm more pro Israel, but I'm, de- i I try to be just as objective as possible and be like, listen, they both deserve that land. There needs to be a two state solution or a one state solution. I don't care. Just a solution that, you know, results in democracy, human rights, and everyone having a shot at, at happiness, right? I'm American and the, the pursuit of happiness is important to me. Um, So my interest today is not really to say like, oh, uh, the Jews deserve this or the Palestinians deserve that and it's been unfair and blah, blah, blah. Um, I just kind of want to talk about the gravity of the whole conflict personally um, and what it means to me and um, why I I kind of want the best for everyone. Um, So for me, I see it as... uh, I'm very sympathetic to the Jewish cause. Uh, you know, I'm very sympathetic to this idea. Like, when are we going to leave the Jews alone? You know, when, when are we? they've been persecuted, they've uh, genocides, countless diasporas, uh, you know, expel the Jewry. was like a common phrase in, in uh, medieval times. Um, when are we just going to leave them a hell alone? Now, th- leaving them alone comes at the, the terrible price of Palestinians giving up their homeland and, and living just uh, under you know, you know you know conditions that no one should be living under um, unspeakable uh, you know lack of rights and and just threat of violence and um, you know, a terrible situation for everyone so it's it 's just a matter of easier said than done to me um, now, I do have some experience, as I said speaking to people from the area um, specific one that comes to mind an incident um, an instance that comes to mind is when I was in Brazil. Uh, in the town of Parachi, um, which is uh, like a sort of beach town south of Rio de Janeiro. Uh, And we got to hanging out with two Brazilian Jews and an Israeli Jew. Uh, The Israeli Jew was um, a young man, about 21, 22 years old. He had served in the IDF as a medic. um, And he was a nice guy, uh, very friendly. um, And we were kind of chit-chatting all night, enjoying ourselves. um, And we got to talking about geopolitics a little bit i mentioned that i studied international relations at university um, and you know we talked about geopolitics kind of i knew that maybe the israeli palestine uh, israel-palestine conflict could come up um, and i didn't necessarily want to talk about it um, at that setting but um, he did start talking about his experiences as a medic Uh, he told me how he has had you know several times some of his close friends um, shot or victims of a a bombing or a rocket or whatever it may be, um, and they—he's had to resuscitate some of his best friends and see the life of their eyes go out in front of him, and um, and it's just something that I—I've never even come close to having an experience like that, and it was really humbling, and it kind of gave me new respect for him and for uh, what Israelis and Palestinians have to deal with, um, or anyone in war, you know, be it Afghani or um you know somali anyone who lives in a country grows up in a country where um with constant war um and he he at one point um i kind of started to talk about the american role uh in in israel palestine and he, he got to a point where he looked at me in the eye and he told me earnestly america's never done anything for israel he honestly believed that. And he said it with such passion and such conviction that I, it left me kind of speechless. And I didn't know how to react. Because for me, it added another layer of pain to the situation. It added another layer of tragedy. Because even if I'm sympathetic to both sides, um, I, I'm i kind of happy if, if uh, America has been able. I mean, even though I, I know a lot of people are against uh, American involvement in the Middle East, period. Right. And I think there's some water to that argument as well. But if, if America has helped Israel in any way, um, you know, establish its own state, uh, a historically very persecuted people finding happiness and and a land for themselves, a state for themselves, if America has helped that in any way, for me, I see that as a positive. And to hear him say that to my face, it was pretty brutal. Um, So that's kind of the Israeli side of things the palestinian side for me is just they're, they're the more obvious victims in this uh in this situation that you see, you see everything on the news i mean it's not right it's just not right what's happening to the palestinians so for me it's like kind of watching a brutal train wreck you can't do anything about slow motion train wreck and you feel for both sides and uh it really tugs at your heartstrings doesn't it
1: yeah i mean well first of all I was pleased to be able to have this conversation with you, probably the most candid conversation about this I've had in quite a while, I suppose, but we're two hours in now and we're still talking about it. And, um, and though I suspect we disagree in a number of points, one of the problems of our time as I see it across the entire political spectrum is a dearth of humility and tolerance when engaging with people we don't agree with. Um, And I was pleased to be able to begin the conversation by examining the historical processes behind the modern conflict. You know, this is ostensibly a history podcast, so it's a good idea to establish context and spend some time considering how Israelis and Palestinians view their own stories rather than dominating the the discourse with how we sit in, which, you know, we did anyway, and I I did, especially, I'm aware, mea culpa. Um, I've always preferred history to politics and sometimes think of the former as politics after the dust's settled or, you know, when the fog of war has kind of dissipated and you, th- you can see things a little more clearly, one hopes. Um, with history, I can more peaceably entertain conflicting perspectives. And admittedly, in contemporary politics, I find it's harder. Um, I don't think we'll ever agree in a single story here, um, but I don't think that's strictly necessary either. Um, people will just somehow, I don't know how they're going to do it, Reach a place where even if it's behind clenched teeth, we can we can or they can acknowledge one another's truth, uh, provided they can all agree on the on uh, some you know the facts at the at the heart of the matter. Um, You know, I yes, I am personally biased. I think I have my biases. I think we all do. I think it's um, I think it's impossible not to have biases. I think objectivity is is an illusion. You have to you have to approach things fairly and and look at both sides of a story. In fact, there are normally multiple sides of a story. Um, and you know, when reading the Israeli historiography, for example, I do tend to um, sympathise more with the new historians, with the revisionist school of Israeli historiography. So that's you know that's where I'm at. I'm sure listeners will all have their own convictions about this um, issue too. Um, in my mind, though, all of this laid the groundwork for the conflict as we know it today. It's, it's exposition. Um, and the aspects of the conflict that I find most egregious are not the history um, that we discussed today. I'm quite sympathetic to, to the Zionist cause at that time. Um, and like you said, this sort of kind of Holocaust guilt, I mean, where... We, we are somehow reluctant to criticize or rebuke Israel too harshly because of the our, our terrible role in the past. Um, and I'm not just talking about the Holocaust, but,
0: you know, pogroms that were conducted for centuries uh, beforehand.
1: Um,
0: yeah, and even even read about, like, the Romans, you know, there's there's evidence that possibly the Romans genocided the Jews. I mean, it just yeah. goes on yeah. and on. Um, the, well, the aspects of the conflict that I find most egregious
1: are, the, I think I mentioned it already during the episode, the so-called permanent status issues, so, you know, the right of return, the uh, security barrier, the um, uh, the settlements, um, etc. Et um, and we'll, we might get into those in a subsequent episode. Um, ultimately, though, this history that we discussed today may explain the dynamics of today's conflict. For me, it doesn't necessarily justify them. Um, I said at the beginning that each side's narrative may be symmetrical, but there's an undeniable asymmetry of power between Israel and Palestine. And there's this tendency to both sides the situation, uh, which may be well-intentioned, but in this case, I believe it's a false dilemma or false balance. And though there are certainly two sides to the story, I think this is a lopsided um, story. Um, I, take, I take issue with the way the narrative is so often framed, either you're pro-Israel or pro-Palestine. And that's somehow supposed to sum up the total of your feelings as though you're not capable of holding more than one thought in your head. Um, For me, it's a case of being pro-human rights and pro-rule of law. And I'm less interested in who started it than where we go from here. Thinking about history requires that you empathize with the different players and I can simultaneously sympathize with the Jewish quest for a homeland and appreciate their attachment to Palestine, yet be outraged by the misfortune of the native Arab population and the arrogance and intransigence of the colonial powers who believe themselves entitled to decide their fate. Um, I actually applaud my government's decision, I don't know if you heard this three days ago, um, to condemn the de facto annexation of Palestinian land by Israeli authorities in contravention of international law, becoming the first European Union state to do so. Um, Condemning in the same breath, I might add, Hamas for its violation of human rights and suppression of democracy and for targeting civilian populations in Israel and knowingly inciting Israel to retaliate upon the civilian population in Gaza. And the fact that Hamas has close ties with other Islamist groups and um, Iran, who is an existential threat to Israel, um, sits very uneasy with me. Um, and it's, it's, a, it's a terrible fact that Palestinian leadership at the moment is not very inspiring. A 75-year-old Mahmoud Abbas, Abu Mazen, who has been in power way too long, um, and Hamas, which is a, a terrorist organization by the same standards of Amnesty International and other organizations that condemn Israeli actions. Um, the Irish Minister um, of Foreign Affairs, uh, Simon Coveney, justified the Irish position by saying, quote, The scale, pace, and strategic nature of Israel's actions on settlement expansion and the intent behind it have brought us to a point where we need to be honest about what is actually happening on the ground. It is de facto annexation. This is not something that I, or in my view, this House, meaning the Irish Parliament, says lightly. We are the first EU state to do so, but it reflects the huge concern we have about the intent of the actions and, of course, their impact. Um, A spokesperson for the Israeli Ministry of Foreign Affairs has since called the Irish position baseless, which to my mind, is magical thinking. Um, He writes um, on Twitter, in fact, that the motion distances Ireland from its ambition to contribute and play a constructive role in the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Um, On the contrary, I would argue that this motion better qualifies Ireland to contribute and play a constructive role than certain other stakeholders, for example, the United States, no, you know, respectfully, um, who has paid lip service to a Palestinian state, yet does little to make it a reality. And uh, the U.S. commitments to multilateralism and human rights have substantial loopholes when it comes to Israel that are inconsistent with its denunciations of Myanmar, Turkey and China. The the latter two, they have officially accused of the respective genocides of Armenians and Uyghurs, which I don't dispute. Um, And I might come across as a bit proud here, but like, why wait, you know, as, as a citizen of a nation that isn't a superpower, why do we wait for other powers such as the united states to tell us what's right and what's wrong what's good or what's bad when we're perfectly capable of discerning that for ourselves and taking a principled stand um, america is caught up in its own web of geopolitical interests and wrestling with its own conscience and uh, i'm sure we'll come around uh, in time from a realpolitik perspective it's widely acknowledged in netanyahu who is about to be ousted as Prime Minister after his repeated failures to form a coalition government while simultaneously facing corruption charges and Hamas, who since coming to power in 2007 have lost popularity due to its authoritarianism and poor governance, stand to gain from the recent uh, conflict. Um, Honestly, at this stage, I hate to say it, but um, I am despairing for a two-state solution and uh the best case scenario now some believe is a stalemate and a return to the status quo which is unacceptable either because it's just a perpetual war um in which no side truly wins and if that's the case it will end up in an ethnic cleansing or a genocide which is the worst uh, that people accuse the israelis of and i don't think any moral person can accept an indefinite suffering
0: you know um yeah the, and i just want to end real quickly i think uh the fact that uh, Saudi Arabia is likely to establish diplomatic relations with Israel soon um, and uh, what is it Egypt Morocco, Morocco. is not the Abraham accords that I think Trump signed with Israel I think four arab countries yeah I think the UAE maybe too I can't remember but yes several arab countries are um they're not they're you know Palestine is losing well, its you know what I mean yeah but, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah but uh, they're you know the Palestinians are are losing friends in the region yeah so
1: yeah, if, if nobody's putting pressure on Israel, uh, the Palestinians are just going to disappear. My f- my fear is that they will become a sort of, a, honestly, a wandering tribe like the Jews used to be. They will be people of Palestinian um, origin. You'll meet them. You'll meet them in the United States. You'll meet them elsewhere. I'm Palestinian, of Palestinian origin, but without a state. Um, and the worst-case scenario is a one-state solution in which Israelis continue to expand their settlements and control all the levels of power while the Palestinians are increasingly marginalized politically and economically, and frankly, it's already a one-state reality. Um, some Palestinians do believe a one-state could be a good outcome if they're given full citizenship, including voting rights and all the other benefits enjoyed by Israelis. But really, few people believe that it's ever likely.
0: Yeah, I, I encourage uh, you, like I said, um, search up the Ask Project. Uh, there, he did a video asking um, Arab Israelis, Muslim Israelis, uh, if they feel occupied, very interesting responses from those from the citizens there.
1: Yeah, there's something uh, the the nation state law. Did you hear about that? The, yeah, last year.
0: Yeah, that's. I mean, that basically
1: formalizes uh, a. in fact, I'm I'm, I'm going to I predict. I know we we disagree on the apartheid analogy, and that's a whole other conversation. But um, I think that in the coming decades, within the next ten, twenty, twenty five years, Israel will be called out. For apartheid, um, and I think it's crazy. Basically, any NGO or human rights organization, organization, any independent organization, has called it apartheid. Governments. It's really interesting how the politics of language. Governments seem to call it near apartheid. You know, it's like mm, we're we're. We're concerned that this will result in a near apartheid position very soon, you know so governments call it close apartheid near apartheid danger of becoming apartheid, mm-hmm. independent organizations call it out for apartheid, and then you've got people disputing the you know the legal terminology of the word but i I predict that in the, in the coming decades it will it will be it, it will be called out um, as an apartheid state um, and I think I agree with. Archbishop Desmond Tutu, who, who famously said, if you're neutral in situations of injustice, you've chosen the side of the oppressor. And I think Israel has some personal responsibility here. I mean, we are sympathetic to Jewish history, um, even though there are horrible anti-Semites um, still in the world. But, I mean, they're probably going to have to take a look at their policy towards the Palestinians if they, if they want to, you know. Yeah, yeah, I can get on board with that yeah so we'll see we'll see i guess feel, yeah it, it, it kind of sucks though to feel so it feels so kind of powerless about it all you know
0: yeah yeah i just uh i hope people can uh listen to this episode and and, and i hope you you don't uh, especially if you're israeli or palestinian uh don't get too angry with us or emotional with us um just know that you know i'm, I'm sure there are a lot of uh, topics that you are ignorant about, and you maybe don't. Uh, maybe you not Well, don't. If, I, if I were listening to a podcast of two
1: foreign guys speaking um, about Irish history, I'm sure I would be. Yeah, I, I, uh, criti- critical. Critical. Uh, I'm, I'm sure Israelis and Palestinians listening to this would, would will disagree and probably be upset about the way I speak about their 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 respective histories. But you know, we are two foreign guys: an American, an Irish guy we're informed but we don't know it all and we're certainly not israeli or palestinian we're we're not jewish or muslim we're you know we're we're privileged to have our own um reasonably secure states and sovereign nations and you know so take it with a pinch of salt if you can and uh, we're aware that we are fundamentally biased etc
0: but um that's yeah. that's where that's where we stand on it, I guess. And I think the p- important thing to take home is that we care. I think we but we care, especially you because you live there, but I definitely care about the people there, you know. Um and we we don't want more violence, uh and we and we want a situation that I mean there's no situation that will make everyone happy. I think that much is obvious. But um I you know, I, I hope that uh, the Jews and the Arabs in the region can can think back to what we were talking about when they were neighbors. They were babysitting each other's kids. They were living yeah. together. They were loving each other. Um, and you know, we hope that someday, yeah. maybe, they'll return to something like that.
1: That's all you can express because I'm not even going to try to suggest how <laughs> how they might do that. But um, yeah.
0: daunting just doesn't do it justice as a word. Um,
1: well, thank you for listening
0: to this especially long episode. I imagine. Um, We'll have it released by 2024. (laughs) Uh, Thank you for listening to this episode of the Polemical History Podcast. Tell us what Polemical History you'd like to hear discussed next or not discussed. Uh, (laughs) As the case may (laughs) be. Shut up about this. Okay. (laughs) On uh, Instagram and Twitter, our handle is at PolemicalCast. Alternatively, you can email us at PolemicalCast at gmail.com. Lastly,
1: we'd like to acknowledge the following sources which were consulted in the making of this episode. Side by Side, Parallel Histories of Israel-Palestine edited by Sami Adwan, Dan Baran, Ayal Naveh, in conjunction with the Peace Research Institute in the Middle East and published by the New Press. The Birth of Israel, Myths and Realities and Zionism and the Palestinians by Sima Flappen. The Arab-Israeli Wars by Chaim Herzog and published by Greenhill Books. And the article entitled the debate about 1948, written by Avi Schlem and published in the International Journal of Middle East Studies by Cambridge University. <laughs>